think if I can let it go by the end of May, then that's for all you know. It made sweet love the day before you picked it up. (laughs) It could have, could have. You are listening to Urban Wildlife. Welcome back to another episode of the Urban Wildlife Podcast. This time. We are co-podcasting with a new podcast that's also part of the Wildlife Observer Network that's called Herpin' Ain't Easy. Um, And so this episode will post it to both streams, Urban Wildlife, um, as well as the Wildlife Observer Network. Um, If you want to learn more about the Wildlife Observer Network, just look up the Wildlife Observer Network. I think it's wildlifeobservernetwork.com. To find us uh, or get in contact with us for the Urban Wildlife Podcast, you can find us at UrbanWildlifeCast at gmail.com. You can tweet at us at HerbWildlifeCast. You can find us on Facebook. Um, please do tell your friends about all these podcasts, how awesome they are, how they should be listening to them and subscribing to them, and also rating them highly on their podcast listening apps of choice. Yeah, yeah. Um, for this episode, we're going to be coming to you both in video and audio. I'll do my best to, we'll both do our best to talk about what things look like that we're looking at as well as just talking about them. But who's the both? That's the question to start with. Um, you got one of your regular Urban Wildlife Podcast co-host, Billy Brown, and I'm here with? Uh, you. It froze for a second. I didn't hear what you said, man. I said, <laughs> I'm Billy Brown. <laughs> Who are you? Oh, hey, everybody. I'm Mike McGraw. Awesome. Uh, and if you can't see Mike McGraw right now, I like to think of him as kind of like our own personal Hagrid. And he's sitting in front of a picture on his virtual background of a gray tree frog. (laughs) It's so big. (laughs) Something from like the Permian. I don't know. Um, So yeah, this and this is a a young of year. This is a recent metamorph. When I took this photo, it was about the size of my thumbnail, (laughs) but now it's very bigger than my head. It is. It's it's a hell of a tree frog. The growth rate is just astronomical on those things. I'm going (laughs) to do you one better, actually, real quick. All right. You think that's a big frog? Oh, 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 oh. This was my first ever virtual Zoom uh, background. I did this for my daughter, Cassidy. It looks like there's a leopard frog falling out of your head. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what is that, Southern? I believe so, yes. Okay. Um, leopard frogs, at some point for the Urban Wildlife Podcast slash when we do another co-post, um, we're going to get to it eventually. We're going to have to talk about the Atlantic Coast leopard frog. Um, which was a sort of Coughfell die, exactly. Which was a, a recently defined species that you know the population they used to define it was in Staten Island, um, and we got them in Philadelphia uh, because yeah. the leopard frogs aren't confusing enough. But sorry, we, yeah, right. Sapiens, <laughs> Spinocephala, Utricularia, and now Coughfell die, and they almost all kind of melt in our region together, which is yeah. And then you got the pickerel frogs that everyone yeah. sees one of those, and they're like, "Wait, is this leopard frog?" You're like, "Nope, this is another pickerel frog." Um, right. But that's not what we're talking about today. Initially, I was prepping Mike because um, I wanted to talk about uh, uh, small lungless salamanders in the family. Uh, I guess the plethodon today. I'm thinking of the plethodon today. Yeah. Um, but then something happened today. So we're going to bump that topic and all its succeeding topics for that back in the order. Um, So I'm going to tell a story. 
Uh, and Mike's going to catch on real quick because I think he's heard this kind of story before. So a friend of mine um, who lives in West Philly, I see her all over the place, or, you know, go to the same synagogue or kids are friends. She's actually an old college buddy of my sister. Um, she emailed me and said, hey, there's a snake hanging around my parents' place, which is in Chestnut Hill, which is near Philadelphia, is kind of a, a, a big houses um, kind of neighborhood on the edge of a big wooded park. Uh, called the Wissahickon. Um, and so they sent me a picture, which I'm going to share screen. Hopefully this works. Um, and I'll describe what we're looking at uh, for people who are, um, who are, who are listening. Um, oh, I, hello. <laughs> so what we're looking at, the orientation is funny on this picture. It's oriented vertically, but what we're looking at, we're looking down at a fire pit Um and with filled with kind of like pumice yeah, um, rocks and nestled in there, there's a snake with um, red sort of orange, brownish, reddish blotches um, on a cream background, shiny cylindrical kind of body. Um, and I immediately knew what that was. Uh, and I think we, you know, we stop sharing the screen and we can go back, which, um, you know, zoom. How do I do that? Stop share. That's the Stop button sharing. I'm looking for. That's it. Okay, we're back. Um, so I looked at that. I said, yeah, that is. And she said, I think sharing. it's a milk we'll snake. Stop. I said, we'll stop, sorry? No, you're good. Okay. <laughs> um, I said, yeah, that's a milk snake. Um, and yeah. she said, you know, her mom wasn't happy with it. I'm like, I, for one, would be delighted to have a milk snake living in my Man, life. that would be <laughs> rad. So, um, and those who, who might, I don't know if it's ever came up on the podcast. Well, maybe it did. It's been a while. Um, but I had a 10-year, up until the 10th year, fruitless search for milk snakes in Philadelphia. Started started when I, in 2005 when I was flipping redback. I was looking actually just for redback salamanders, which is the topic for next time. Um, but I was flipping redbacks in the Wissahickon on a hillside, and I flipped a baby milk snake. And mm. so baby milk snakes... Um, if the parents are kind, the adults are rather are, are kind of reddish brown pattern. Um, the babies are like the same pattern, but was like scarlet. They are screamers. Yeah, I don't think you could call it ontogenetic melanism, the way you do with turtles. You know, a turtle will be very brightly patterned, and they get darker, yeah. darker over time. Their skin, their skewts, everything. Yeah, that's not it. But they definitely dull. They go from these intense, more intense colors to more drab colors. I suspect evolutionarily the smaller ones have more of the true Batesian mimicry where they want to look like they're toxic. Yeah. So there's less like it's less likelihood that a blue jay is going to pluck them and eat them or something where the older ones do better looking like leaf litter, you know? I agree. And they, um, and they, uh, we'll let's swerve into some biology quick. Okay. So, um, so you were starting, starting to talk about mimicry. So over much of the range of the species, Mike, what would they be mimicking? That's a great question. So for Eastern milk snake. Nothing. I don't know. <laughs> nothing. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, Scarlet Kings overlap with um, our uh, native cobra relative, you know, the uh, coral snake. Yep. Um, so, I mean... In North America, excluding probably parts of Central America that are really technically North America too, um, 
I think coral snakes, and we only have two species, would be the only thing that they might mimic that's actually venomous. Yeah. Now, bright coloration in small things that might be under rocks or in leaf litter is more expansive. There's a variety of caterpillars and such that may throw some, like, for example, the saddleback or something. Obviously, this thing is not mimicking a saddleback, but perhaps if something just saw a little piece of it, it might think, I'm not going to peck at that because it's boldly red and yellowish or something. And yeah. Look out. Yeah. (laughs) So, um, so. Uh, these guys are, um, these guys are basically, if you're, if you're into snakes at all, you'll know king snakes, you'll know milk snakes. It's one big genus, um, Lampropeltis, and, um, they're popular in the, in the, the captive trade and in the hobby. Um, not this particular species, but other milk snakes, particularly some of the Central American ones. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I saw pyromelina in Arizona. Uh, the uh, the Sonoran milk snake or whatever. Arizona Mountain. Saw, Arizona Mountain, thank you. Yep. The reason I thought Sonoran is because they overlap in range with an actual coral snake, you know. Um, ah, yeah. Which one is it? It's uh, Microorides urizanthus. So it's not even Microorides. It's a Microorides. It's a smaller one. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, sorry. Good. Oh, wait, and since I'm jaw-flapping, let me also state that the Lampropeltis genus, I think I'm in the camp that this group needs a much more grand genetic overhaul. Okay. Um, I feel like it's sort of a catch basin for a lot of things. Kings and milks have a lot of variation, and I don't know if they should all be under the same genus or not. But Well, fair points. Um, and perhaps something to dive into another episode of Herpin and Easy. Um, but the... But so that's the snake we were looking at. And so if you're into snakes, it's hard not to like a milk snake. Um, they got good colors. They're muscular snakes. When you, it's, these are details that might, you might be listening to this and being, what the hell are these nuts talking about? But when you hold them, they're, they're just, they feel good in the hand. They're strong, smooth snakes. Um, they don't like flail around like a water snake does. Um, they rarely bite. Rarely bite. Um, and so with very mixed, so what I was saying, I found that baby one in 2005 and I thought back then, Oh, easy. I'll find another one. Right. It took me 10 years, Mike, to find another (laughs) milk snake in Philadelphia. (laughs) And like, I think this is a fair description of what they're like sometimes is that, uh, you can certainly have reliable milk snake spots, but there are also plenty of situations where, you find, and you hear this from other people, you find a milk snake one time and you're like, oh, sure, they're there. Or one time you find four of them and then you go back and they're just never there again. And the, and this was my situation. I flipped one like on my, it was my birthday 10 years later, I guess. So, so 2015. Um, yeah. And I like, you know, Gigi, um, now my wife and my daughter, Magnolia were with me. I did a dance. I was just so happy. Um, and so, it, sure. So this was sort of a complicated emotional moment when someone's like, please take this milk snake from right. my Philadelphia parents' yard. <laughs> so like the fact that this, this thing exists here should be so celebrated. Like we shouldn't move this thing at all because somehow it's managed to make it to adulthood in the city proper, you know? Well, and it, what do they eat, man? They eat mice. Right. For the most I mean, part. Yeah. The, 
Yeah, the baby, I think there's an ontogenic, so as they age, there's a shift in how they eat. My understanding is the the young ones tend to eat reptiles and amphibians more. And then as they get older, they have a shift to uh, eating um, mostly uh, warm-blooded prey, mostly small mammals. Um, And so these tend to be undercover. So these are snakes that most of the time are, are in cracks in the ground or under stuff in the leaf litter sniffing around looking for mouse nests is probably like how they spend most of their time if they're not just sleeping. Um, and so in this case, uh, anyways, so I said, you know, I was, I was like, are you sure you want me to get this snake? Yeah. Um, and they were like, no, no, my mom really wants me you to get this snake. I'm like, all right, I, I know your mom. I'll, I'll get the snake. So yeah. I went by today. Um, I was coming back from uh, a marsh where I spend a lot of time. Um, and, um, I, so I was on my way back. And so I stopped and, um, I, pardon me, I was thinking like, you know, we're going to look for this snake. It's not going to be there. I mean, how many times does someone say, oh, I saw a snake under there and like you go back and the snake had other things to do (laughs) and moved on. (laughs) Yeah. It's, 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 uh, very rare to find a snake in a spot and even minutes later, come back and find it in the same spot. Well, um, so today, (laughs) today, uh, indeed this, and I was like, I'm saying to to the woman, I know, and I was like, yeah, I don't know. Look under there, but yeah, I don't know. So, so sure enough, we flip up the the top of this fire pit. Um, and there's the snake nestled in the pumice rock. So I picked it up. Um, I told her to have a pillowcase ready for me. So I threw in the pillowcase. Um, and I, and so this is, and I'll, and I'll show some pictures of the snake real quick and then we'll get into really the discussion part. Yeah. Um, So I'm going to go back to share a screen for those of you listening. I apologize for these little delays. Um, and, uh, so here's some pictures of the snake close up, um, back at our house. Um, Mike, can you see this? Yes, I can. All right, so this is the snake in hand, um, in my hand, on my porch. Uh, it's about a two-footer, I'd say. And, um, oh, come on, Google. I want to show you the next picture. Uh, it has some lesions on it, Mike. Sure um, does. So it had a few bumps. And so, and this is getting into another sort of topic of snakes, which we can dive into in another episode. Um, but there are, uh, so there's two Two phenomena that are hard to tell apart. I'll put it that way. Um, and w- w- I'm showing you this picture of the snake. The snake has like a crusty thing on one side of its nose, basically. Um, it looks like there's a piece of mud stuck to it, but it's not. It's like a crusty bit on its nose. It's, it's, it's a it's a feature of its skin. It's some kind of lesion. Um, yeah, there's so, there's definitely an injury underneath that scale, and it's resulting in a malformed scale. Too. Well, but there's so if you're if you when you catch snakes early in the spring. A lot of time they've got some blisters on them. They look a little rough. Um, from what? Huh? From, from? From presumably. And so ever since I was a kid, the story is that in hibernation, sometimes the conditions are a little too moist. They end up with some infections in their skin. Um, and then more recently, uh, there's been a relatively scary outbreak of a snake pathogenic fungus. Yeah. Um, and so when you look at a snake, if you look at the snake, and I caught this snake at, at the end of May or beginning of June, presumably it would have had a few meals in it, would have shed a couple, one, at least once um, since hibernating. I would say if it still has those lesions, 
I'm, I'm, I'm calling the people or I'm emailing the people who keep track of this snake fungus. Yeah. Um, and, but straight out of hibernation, you don't know. Um, and right, but you're right. Usually after a shed or two, they can heal up whatever hibernation sores. Yeah. May occur. Right. So this is sort so, of, should we do a quick plug for knee park and the knee park working group on snake fungus? Please do. All right. So the Northeastern partners, of amphibian and reptile conservation. It's one regional section of park, Partners of Amphibian and Reptile Conservation, which is national. Yeah. Um, the Northeastern group, um, all the groups do amazing things, but <clears throat> maybe I'm biased because we're, we're in the We're Northeast. in the Northeast, part of the, Yeah, and we're <laughs> part of New Park. So, um, but their working groups have produced a lot of really valuable stuff. So, you know, some are like landowner guides, how to build a vernal pool or how to protect a vernal pool or, you know, Cool yep. things like that, but uh, um, most in, in in my eyes, the one of the most important working groups has dealt with uh, chytrid fungus and uh, how to clean protocols for cleaning your gear before entering or leaving any wetlands, especially if you're surveying multiple wetlands in a day, so you're not the vector, right? You're not right. transmitting. But then the other thing is the snake disease, the the, the fu- snake, the fungal snake working group. They've done a lot of research and have access to a variety of, I think it was centered mostly around timber, timber rattlesnakes. Because those are the ones with more conservation and concern, yeah. Right, but then they're noticing it in rat snakes and all these other, before you know, realizing it's a lot more common, maybe King it's snakes. because it's emerging more and it's becoming more prevalent. You, you pause there for a second after preview on the New Park website. Um, you can find a link to, to this stuff and, and just have a, an interesting fact sheet that teaches you more about what Billy just referenced, the snake fungus. Absolutely. Right. And I, th- I think this is something, as this podcast progresses, um, perhaps this is something we can do is talk more to the New Park people and learn more about it. Oh, um, yeah. Whoever's uh, the lead person for that working group, I'm sure would be happy to talk with us. Yep. So, so what I decided to do, because I mean, obviously you saw that picture of the snake on my porch. Um, is I took it home at first. I was like, okay, I'm not sure what I'm going to do with this snake. As I see it, um, the two big options are uh, are keep it as some kind of demo animal for educational purposes, um, or B, release it pretty close to where we found it. Uh, in other words, this is a person's yard next to a very large wooded park. Um, my My release inclination would be to drop it off maybe a hundred yards down the hill. <laughs> um, and, yeah. and they didn't see the snake last year. I'm wondering if, and the snake, when I found it was next to a little pile of shredded, uh, you know, uh, cloth and, and uh, leaf matter and stuff sitting on t- in that, in that pumice rock area too. So I think it basically cleaned yeah. out a mouse nest and was sleeping it off. Sure. Um, sure. And uh, so I, I have a feeling the snake isn't going to, I mean, it's a freaking fire pit, you know, other aspects of it are going to drive away the snake. Um, so I have a feeling that the snake will probably do okay downhill. Um, but, uh, you know, what I, we sort of decided to do was sort of keep it. Of course, when I got home, my daughter Magnolia's like, can we keep it? Can we keep it? Can we keep it? And I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> um, and so I, uh, so I'll, I'll, I'll jump to my decision, but then we can talk about what the pros and cons of these kind of things are and, and aspects of snake relocation and stuff. Um, yeah. Basically, I think I'm going to hold on to it until it sheds, um, see how it looks, um, cool. maybe get a mouse in it, 
and then uh, basically release it back down the hill. It's the current plan right now. Um, I've got it in a tank, and, and per your point about actually pathogens, um, we gave the, the, the tank had previously been used as a holding tank for when my, we cleaned my daughter's uh, rat's cage, basically. Um, but we, we gave it a good scrubbing with some bleach, um, you know, got some fresh bedding in there. So I'm pretty sure nothing lived in that, t- nothing <laughs> alive is on the surface of the tank as best as we could do. Right on. Um, I'll, I'll turn this computer around because I'm sitting right there. Mike, can you see this, Nate? Yeah. Okay. What's up, buddy? So my daughter has dubbed the snake Lucille. It looks like a female. Is it a female? I think so, yeah. Okay. Um, has a has a, a female-sized tail and, and all that. Triangular um, and noticeable taper after the cloaca. Yep. So snakes, for those who aren't so familiar, they the males store their sex organs, which are twin organs called hemipenes, inverted into the base of the tail. And so... Um, male snakes will have a sort of a, the vent, their all purpose hole will be there. And then it kind of comes out a bit and then tapers. Um, this one is more of an even taper and a shorter tail. So you can't Not really a great smuggler, just a bikini. Just a bikini. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't probe it to see for sure, but I'm betting. No need to do that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'd argue that probing is not necessary unless you're like a snake breeder or something. Which we're not. So <laughs> most certainly are not. So um so we've had a couple of I have right? a set of probes because I've so done do research. I, sir. <laughs> I've done I've done research where you know we had to hatch out 175 pine snake eggs and yeah. bag them and release them, but before releasing them, we had to confirm their sex. So we yeah. probe because they're too small at that point to well, whatever. So describe what when we say probing, what do we mean? So basically, you're taking this sterile tip of a smooth metal Q-tip, essentially, um, and you're going into the colloquial opening and and nesting down in to see how far it goes in. Yep. Right. And if it goes in farther, then there's there's not hemipenes in the way. So. Yep. Yeah. Um, so the so we um, in any case so. Uh, so we did a couple episodes over the years, um, and I'm going to keep the screen on me, but flip to a different page where my notes are. Um, and so we did an episode back in 2016 called one man's pest is another's gorgeous rattlesnake, where we talked to Brian Hughes of rattlesnake solutions in uh, the Phoenix area. And they do, um, they do rattlesnake relocation and then, basically consulting for homeowners to talk about how to make their yards less attractive to rattlesnakes the next time. Um, and then we did an episode called where to put toilet and backyard snakes, two parts um, in September of 2018. We talked to a snake relocator um, rescuer in Australia, one in um, one who was in the States at the time, but who was from Bangalore and had done the work there in Bangalore. And these are places where you can actually get a toilet snake. You don't get toilet snakes in Philly. <laughs> you know, but every now and then a cobra comes up your toilet in Bangalore. So <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly right. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> this is a so so highlights. I mean, like so the 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 one um, thing Yasmin, uh, her name uh, Jasmine. I'm sorry, Jasmine in Australia um, had stories about you know pulling some very hefty carpet pythons out of people's um, like garages and stuff in Australia, and then. 
um, Yatin, who is the guy from Bangalore, was talking about, this is my favorite part of the whole interview, is, is he, he would be capturing things like large Russell's vipers, which are large, very dangerous snakes. Um, they're accounted for most of the bites in Southeast India, right? I mean, they're, they're in the tea fields where people are working with like open-toed shoes and there's a hyper concentration of rats from the tea, the conversion. Or rice, yeah, yeah. Or rice, yeah. So then you end up with this hyper accumulation of these extremely venomous, if not provoked, harmless, but if provoked, very dangerous animals. Very know? dangerous animals. Yeah. And yeah. So, um, so I'd be like, so wait, you're in high school. How are you getting this snake from the person's house to where you're going to let it go? Yeah. And he's like, well, on my bike. I'm like, okay, but where's the snake? He's like, oh, it's in my backpack. And I'm yeah. like, dude. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, wow. so in any case, um, it's a, in the snake world, people often don't want the, a snake on their property anymore, right? And sometimes it's because it's dangerous. And sometimes for like in this case, where I, it's just someone's got a phobia and I'm not sure what to do about it. Um, but relocation is, uh, it, well, let's talk about why it can be a controversial thing. You want to tackle some reasons why it might be a bad, what, what might, what could go wrong when you're relocating a snake? Well, and one thing I'm going to preface, I don't know if the listeners can hear this, but I keep getting like four second freezes. So I apologize if I seem like I missed something you've said. Okay. Um, but okay. There's a number of things that can happen that can go wrong with, Relocating or translocating a snake, right? And the yeah. difference between a formal relocation is moving something way out of its, technically out of its home range, where translocation is this idea of consciously keeping it within its range, right? but away from an immediate space, be it a backyard or a, you know. Which is what I'm thinking of doing, yeah. yeah. Well, um, in both scenarios, and I haven't seen any research with Lampropeltis, specifically Triangulum Triangulum, which is this species. Um, I do have a colleague right now who's doing radio telemetry with Lampropeltis getula getula in the oh. New Jersey Pine Barrens. Um, so there will be data soon. And actually, we could talk to John and find out um, his thought on this. But home range fidelity is a real thing. It's, it's really real. And uh, males and females often behave differently, but both tend to repeat very similar patterns throughout the season. Um, they emerge from a critical hibernacula, which is like a den to overwinter, yeah. um, which is critical habitat, right? And then we'll forage, move around. You know, at, at first they're going to, males are going to try and pick up the pheromonal, uh, you know, scent of a female and breed. Not, not all species breed in spring. I'm pretty sure Lampropelt, uh, at least Eastern milk does. They come out of hibernation. They breed even before they focus a lot of time feeding. And then it's forage, 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 or feed a bunch and bask a bunch if you're a female. And at this point, that could be a gravid female, in which case maybe it gets really hot in those pumice rocks. That seems early, man, but that was hot. I mean, I, well, I here's the thing. When I, I mean, it, I don't think it's too early for them to have bread. I mean, garter snakes are done, water snakes no, are done. Oh, you're right. You're right. You know, right. Yeah. but I also could be wrong, but think about it. Most, um, what's it, oviviparous snakes, egg laying snakes, yeah. lay eggs in like mid June in our region, and they take 
40 to 60 days to gestate and then internally and then externally is another period of time or maybe, maybe it's less. We got to find that out. We should find that out for this species um, and do some backwards math. You may have I've got a, some captive husbandry books behind me, but I'm not going to start pulling them out. But yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, I would even look at some more, maybe not captain captive husbandry, unless it's really well cited in the literature. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think better to look at, um, you know, an you know, Alan or a. You keep you talking. Know. I'm going to grab my, uh, my Ernst over here. I think I got yeah, it. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, something like that. One sec. Uh, you keep going. You know, snakes in Pennsylvania may have a good citation or, or a, you know, some good documented um, observations on when these snakes actually breed versus when they lay eggs. Um, so, anyway, um, that animal is going to identify. Yeah, right. Exactly. So, um, you know, this animal's life history is to remain healthy, not get eaten. Snakes are very low on the food web. Um, they are. This is the time of year to see hawks flying around with snakes. All the time. And house cats murder snakes. You know, everybody now believe, finally believes that cats kill birds. Well, guess what? They kill lots and lots of snakes and frogs as so well. Keep your damn cats inside. Keep your cats inside, please. And pick up a new cat from the street and bring it inside, too. Um, actually, my colleague, um, my uh, ecologist friend at my job, um, just recently forwarded me something about these little, like, cat collars that apparently help reduce at least uh, avian mortality because birds have a better chance seeing them coming because they jingle and have color. I'm not, yeah, not a solution. It doesn't work with nestling birds, though. Of course not. No, there's a, a or a snake. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Snakes don't have ears. <laughs> and, uh, you know, they're not, yeah. So, anyway. Um, but, you know, I did radio telemetry with northern pine snakes. We did a translocation study, and uh, our end was pretty large. We had dozens and dozens of snakes, both males and females, different ages. And the home range fidelity was 100% throughout. I mean, these animals know their landscape, and they return to them. Box turtles have been documented, and other turtle species foregoing all, you know, they'll cross through an open cornfield to beeline back towards a location after somebody thinks they're doing well by picking one up off the road, and then they bring it to their house or right. move it three miles down the road and drop it off at the nearest county park. And that animal just turns around and starts walking right back to where you found it, essentially. You know. So, um, so, so that's a, I'm being long-winded. Home range fidelity is a real thing. Well, so if you let that snake go, it may just end up in their backyard again. You don't have to tell the land, the landowner that. Um, if they're listening, sorry. Well, but I'm comforted by the fact that they this is an adult or pretty close to adult snake or adult snake yeah. that they that they've only seen once in this particular spot. Right. I bet this snake. And this is a heavily lance. This is a landscape backyard with like a patio. There's like you know stone um, retaining walls and stuff. There's like all these places a milk snake would be spending quality time. In addition to this particular fire pit, um, that yeah. I bet this snake has been there for years, living in the stones in the patio. Um, and this is just the one time it was somewhere where they saw it. You know? Right. Well, you're probably right. In in which case, Billy, to be honest with you. I disagree with letting it go in the nearest wild space. I think you should feed it back into the cracks and the rocks in their patio and say, hey, it's gone. Well, when I say the nearest wild space, I mean like li their backyard ends and the Wissahickon begins. 
Oh, okay. They truly abut the wiss. Exactly. I'm saying okay. I will come up from the trail and let it go within eyesight of their backyard. Okay. Figure nice. Oh, so that like, could be a good translocation. As yeah. long as between the, the home, wherever the place is, where it was found and the place you're releasing it, there aren't like impassable things, barriers, oh, you know, roads. No, 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 like no. That, you know, so that's okay. Wooden that's, great. Yeah. I'm yeah, thinking, right I'm thinking, I'm thinking 50, like, well, max 50 yards of wooded hillside, you know? Um, that sounds perfect. So really just checking your, our, our point right here. So the, so this is amphibians and reptiles of Pennsylvania and the Northeast, but really it's Pennsylvania um, by okay. Arthur Hulse, CJ McCoy and Ellen Sensky. Um, it is sort of like the basic manual for herps of Pennsylvania. Um, and it says that by the end of May, eggs are ready, ready to be ovulated. Um, and then egg laying occurs mid June to early July. So I would bet this one hasn't bred yet, okay. um, but, but soon. So I'm kind of like, I don't want to, I think if I can let it go by the end of May, then that's for all, not, you know, it made sweet love the day before you picked it up. <laughs> it could have. Could have. <laughs> um, so the, but you end up in a lot of these cases um, and you see this with, I think, the, the pros. It's something that, the, that, and Mike was, as you were saying, that that it isn't like snakes. You can pop them anywhere, and they'll just, hey, wherever, I'll, I'll do fine here. There's a rock, you know. No, they 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 know their place, and they know where their hiding places are. They know where they look for food. Exactly. They, yes. Yeah. Uh, uh, they they sense danger. They know where to escape. They know where that hole is. They got to dive right. into. So yeah. it's the the nerdy way to say it is the the probability of predation greatly increases when you move them from where they are. They're going to get hammered by a hawk. <laughs> yeah. Or even a, a blue jay could do a number on that thing. Yep. Or a fox or any number, a raccoon. Name any it. Gunk, fox, squirrels, and chipmunks. I did studies in the uh, Bronx in, at New York Botanical Garden, and every single snake I found had no tail. Nubs up to like a centimeter from the cloaca. Chipmunks. I found chipmunks running around with neonate garter snakes and middle-aged garter snakes in their mouths. Insane. <laughs> right. You know, they're so low on the food chain, you know? I believe it. So, hey, we got, uh, I think, about three or four minutes left. Um, so we're going to wrap it up. Um, I'm going to say, we'll stay tuned. We'll talk more about what my daughter has named Lucille the Milk Snake, um, possibly the next time we talk. Then that time, we're really going to talk about salamanders, I promise. Um, yeah. And I know you're sitting there thinking, salamanders really, really, it's a fun topic. Dude, um, and especially this group. It's a mind blower, y'all. Yeah. So um, so we'll talk about that soon. I'll say, uh, please tell your friends if you like this podcast. Um, and if you're watching it on YouTube, please tell your friends about this YouTube stream um, for the Urban, Urban Wildlife Podcast and for Herpin Ain't Easy, all part of the Wildlife Observer Network. Um, you can, again, Get in touch with uh, this email feeds. I'll see it, you know, to urbanwildlifecast at gmail.com. Tweet at us at urbwildlifecast. Find us on Facebook. Um, and uh, we'll come out with more episodes all about herping. And when there's an overlap with the urban stuff, like it is in this case, when we're talking about how critters end up in people's yards, um, we might cross post again with the, the Urban Wildlife Podcast. Um, and I want to thank Perfect Mike. segue with Plethodon today, too. Total right. backyard, backyard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. It's often one of the first uh, herps that kids see and get stoked on this group of animals. 
I agree. You know, right, did you so, tell the Herpin ain't easy story to these people yet? I know we're not doing it now. About how the name came about? Yeah. No, but we'll talk about it in the next episode, perhaps. Maybe we'll see. Yeah. All right. well, either way, if y'all didn't learn anything today, you learned. Don't forget, Herpin ain't easy, y'all. Damn right. All right. Have a good night. See you later. Really good to see you, buddy. <laughs>